HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. One House is a recruitment firm providing a tailored talent search to hospitality operators throughout the country. Empowered Hospitality provides human resources services to the restaurants and hotel sector, empowering operators with knowledge, guidance, and time. Together, we are Recruit, Retain, Relax. All right, here we are again, Recruit, Retain, Relax. It's Mike Hewitt here from One House and Sarah Deal from Empowered Hospitality uh, here to discuss the current staffing dilemma in the hospitality sector, obviously. Um, Where is everybody? What's trending? How can operators react and adapt and survive? Our main focus is on recruitment and retention, how to find them and how to keep them. Sarah and I operate national hospitality recruitment and HR consulting companies servicing all sectors from Michelin-starred to mom-and-pop startups, giving us a unique outlook and intel on this topic. And now, let's welcome our guest. We have Annie Shee, owner of King Restaurant here in New York, Alita Maxwell, Chief HR Officer of Dos Toros Taqueria, and Camille Becerra, Chef and Food Stylist, also based in New York. Today's topic revolves around females in hospitality, but not necessarily focus on the, uh, you know, the troubles and obstacles coming up in a male-dominated sector, but more on the success and way to keep uh, and help other women rise up in the industry. So we're going to kick it off and talk a little bit about recruitment, and I will um, start off with Camille. So what challenges do women face in a leadership position, and what can male bosses do to help? Well, I think the challenges really um, for me were finding a restaurant team to support uh, my work. I think early on when I started, uh, it was a very different environment. Women weren't staying in the kitchens. Uh, You had restaurateurs that wanted to be a restaurateur but really didn't have uh, the level of commitment that it takes to... Uh, support a team like that and the rigorous hours, etc. So what happened for me was I was kind of operating as a single mom in New York City, operating from a level of necessity. And uh, I was going into these environments uh, to develop 
to develop kitchens, to develop menus, to mm-hmm. develop concepts. And I just kept coming into this sort of uh, the same experience where I would, would do my job and then would not get paid. And um, I think that that was like one of the biggest reasons for me to sort of take a moment and leave the restaurant world and understand where it's at. But I will say that the shift that I saw within those years of working and seeing women stay in kitchens was really inspiring and really a great part of my experience as a chef. And having taken a step back and gained some perspective, how do you view necessity now as you're thinking about future projects? Has your perspective changed at all in terms of how you're choosing the projects you work on or whether you're beholden to that sense of necessity in the same way? No, I think that I've learned a lot and I've had to sort of put my trust into understanding that if something isn't right to not go into it and that something else will come out. So it's been a real sort of spiritual practice as well. Uh, And um, yeah, I'm much more happier from it. Thank you. Um, Annie, similar, similar question, right? As far as, uh, you know, some of the challenges uh, for females in leadership positions and, and also, yeah, how to, how to male bosses, right? The boss, the owners or upper management, what can they do to actually help some of this and alleviate some of the issues? Um, so I think one of the challenges that we face and that I continue to face is the the kind of even unspoken effort that you have to prove yourself to be the manager, the owner. I think we have guests come in, and especially in our first year, they would ask me, they'd be like, can I speak to the manager? And I'd have to be like, well, I am the manager. Oh, <laughs> like, hi, it's me. Um, <laughs> and I think there is, especially with the older generation, they kind of like look around the room for the tall white male. And when they don't see it, they're like, oh, like, who do I, like, who's in charge here? Um, and that's definitely changed as we've been around a little bit more and people know that it's um, a woman-run restaurant. Um but I think in the initial days, just even having to present yourself as a leader, or rather having people assume you're not the leader, I think having to overcome that is um, just work that you don't even think about that you have to put in every single day. Um, and now we have an amazing team. Um, our AGM is um, a man, and he is incredible at his job. And I think it's because, and it sounds so simple, like he really respects Claire, Jess, and I, and there's never, um, you know, he came in like with a really open mind. And I think we've seen it with some of our other male hires where they come in and they, there's kind of this like, oh, like they may know the better way in some respects. And it's like, well, you're kind of coming into our space. Like we've been open for two years, three years, whatever it is. Like, this is how we run things. You have to kind of prove yourself to get to a point where we're so open for constructive criticism we're open to collaboration but you have to like play by the rules first um and I think what's great about Oliver is that he came in he was like this restaurant is amazing I'm so excited to work here like I respect how you guys run things and it sounds so straightforward but you can really you can really sense it in the attitude of the people you hire true true Annie you said something 
uh, before we got started about how you decided to present your business and not emphasizing the fact that it's three women who are who are spearheading the opening. So can you talk about that a little bit, why you made that decision and what you feel the consequences were? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, when we were opening King, obviously not a single one of us had restaurant experience in New York City. And so I think our PR company said to us like, oh, well, this is a really great moment for women. Like, I think it'd be really cool to kind of present you guys as, you know, three young women opening a restaurant in New York City. And we thought about it and it just like sat really wrong with us. And I think it's because we always like wanted people to come back to us because they fell in love with the food and the experience and the mm-hmm. wine list. And, you know, I've never simply gone back to a restaurant because, oh, it's female owned. Um, I think that's, I think we wanted to just be an example of that in the city, but we really wanted King to be loved for its merits as a restaurant, um, first and foremost. Yeah, great. That's smart. And again, it's King, not Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, if they really wanted to spin it, you know, on that. So I think that's smart to, to really give it its own, you know, ground to stand on. And Alita, so different perspective from an HR kind of looking the other way, right, on the recruitment side, among other things. Uh, what is your perspective on that? Well, I think it's twofold. One, it's about who you choose to partner with. I think that um, in where we are right now, especially in New York, there's so many different choices of partnerships in the restaurant field. And so making sure that you pick a partner or pick a group of partners that um, will respect your opinion and will allow you to have a voice at the table is really, really important. And the second thing is, I think, calling people on it, educating people. When you get mansplained in the middle of a meeting, you know, pulling them to the side afterwards and saying, hey, what just happened? I'm, I'm not really okay with that. Let me tell you how that made me feel. Um, and educating them as you go in a way that doesn't make them defensive, but in a way that kind of opens their eyes as to how you felt um, is a way that I've approached it. Nice. It's a nice, subtle education route instead of the, the whip coming out. Yeah, I find beating people over the head does not get me the um, response that I Kinda, want. Kind of the primal male, you know, yes. the Neanderthal thing, hit him over the head with the... <laughs> yeah, I like to go in a, in, a, in a less distracting way. Nice. Yeah, I'm curious, too, um, for you, Annie, and Camille, from a operations perspective, does that education happen, or is it something that you choose to compromise in the interest of providing a great experience, like the guest who asks for the manager and they don't get the person they expect? Do you take a stand? Do you not? How do you kind of deal with that particular situation? If people aren't supportive, you know, how far do you feel comfortable pushing that? Is that like that? a teachable moment or do you just yeah, let it sit? And right. Um, I think that, you know, with everything changing, you know, people, they need a minute to understand things. So I always take the approach as like, you know, being informative, but chill about it. I think that there are people, though, that don't understand that um, and become sort of aggressive and at that point you know and I'm you know I I'm speaking from an an internal space like I'm speaking about like my co-employees um because I don't work 
in the front of the house. Um, I think that I've had to, yeah, teach a lot of people that there are certain ways to, um, to adapt to the way things are happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember in one situation, there was a general manager that was just so abusive and the owner really loved him and because he actually worked a lot and the owner loved that, you know, he was a workaholic and, he would just be so abusive and send me abusive texts and um but also physically abusive and one wow. and would not understand like you know like you have to chill out and i had to kind of take things under my own hands and i decided to just post without his name on it post all these horrible texts that he wow. would send and he quit the next day so a little shaming so i mean I and i never i never put his name on there but you know sometimes people <laughs> need to mm-hmm. see it in a different light and and really kind of have it touch them yeah do you have advice for a a female or any employee or consultant who's working in a situation like that like what did you learn from that that you would want to share with other people who are facing similar challenges I think that early on it's so important to tackle it and I and I didn't I kind of let it go because I was so busy with my work and to do certain things like that it does take energy it does take time but it's so important just to start taking care of certain things in the beginning and confronting them and really understanding that this is your your mental health at stake. And if you feel like there's no one listening, it's so important just to leave that situation. That zero mm-hmm. tolerance of like absolutely not acceptable from day one, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which in some ways speaks a little bit about a little bit about the Me Too movement of you know sometimes not addressing things and maybe waiting years and then it's, it's really digging inside you for all this time and mm-hmm. I think people are really now flourishing in that sense that no from day one you do something that's not right you're getting called out right away and then just squashing it yeah so that makes sense um, when uh, as far as recruitment though when women recruiting other women right once they've reached the pinnacle the top right of their uh, of their field. How can women in hospitality actually extend their hand down to lift other women up in a responsible and ethical way, right, in the hospitality industry? Annie, how do you uh, envision that, one one female to another? Um, I actually, I think that, first of all, it's obviously about mentorship, and I think I just happen to see that a lot more young women reach out to me than young men, and that's kind of, I think, what you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. it's like you just attract people the who are drawn to that. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is great because it, there probably has been a lack of that for the past couple of years. Um, and then just always remembering to make time for those people. And I try to follow up um, and check in to see how they're doing. And I think I remember receiving that kind of guidance when I was starting out and I was trying to quit one industry to start another. And I asked so many questions and received a lot of great answers from people. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really, it's giving your time to people and being Mm -hmm. thoughtful. Um, Even when you're having like, even when you're working doubles all week or you're closing all the time, it's so easy to say like, oh, I'm so like stuck in service, but um, really just like 
30 minutes at the bar over a coffee in your own restaurant. That makes a difference, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and honestly, just physically being there, like for some other female uh, in the back of the house or front, to be able to look up and and see and maybe identify with, you know, oh, wow, I want to be like her when, you know, in the the future, right? Regardless, again, of of female or male, but I, I, I feel like sometimes in the past, maybe there was only one female in the kitchen. Maybe she was in the pastry department. Maybe there was no one else around that was that she could look up to and be like, wow, you know, I'm going to be the exec chef one day if that was her goal or the mm-hmm. GM or something like that. So it's kind of cool that there is, you know, obviously there are more of them in the kitchen and in the front where people can actually look up and, and be inspired too. Yeah, I think it's also just acknowledging that we're in the spotlight. And I think that's true of all leaders, but maybe not all leaders carry that sense of responsibility. And I think as women leaders in an industry that's gradually shifting to be more egalitarian, I think we very much are the focal point and to know that people are watching the decisions we make and the type of models that we are is really important. Mm-hmm. And for Alita, obviously, uh, especially on the last part of responsible and ethical way, when it comes to recruitment, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, uh, without discrimination in, in play, but how can uh, females help other females on the way up? Well, yeah, in recruitment, we have to be very careful, and I try to um, mm-hmm. always look at the skills that they're bringing to the table and the cultural fit. But um, to piggyback on Sarah's point, I do think it's our responsibility, and I really look at it um, more as I'm not helping others, I'm actually helping myself. So it's part of my development mm-hmm. to help other people. It's part of my development to mentor others and to share best practices or um, share experiences mm-hmm. with other females coming up. Um, and so I think that change in thinking is also helpful because if you're yeah. looking at it like, oh, I'm just helping you, you might not make time for it as much. Um, but if you look at it as part of my development, I have to spend at least a half an hour, hour of my time every week focusing on somebody else's development. Um, it could be very powerful. It's like a self-improvement thing. So yeah. it changes a little bit of the, the focus of it. That makes sense. Alita, I'm also curious from the perspective of HR, how you try to attain that balance or that lack of bias in the recruiting process. There's recent legislation in New York that prohibits us from asking someone's salary history, for example, which is meant to level the playing field for women and and minorities. So I wonder if there are other best practices you can share in terms of cultivating more fairness in the hiring process? Well, I've always looked for um, diversity in my team. So on any team, whether it's a restaurant management team, I don't want all white males because that is going to stifle growth in that restaurant or that's going to stifle people speaking out. So I want different ethnicities, different sexes, so that anybody is comfortable speaking up or coming to somebody on the management team. And I look at that throughout every department. So marketing team, I want diversity and HR team. And so I think if you look at it that way, not just sexes, but um, the nationality and the background, um, and you look at it from a truly inclusive perspective, making sure that everybody is represented, um, you can get out of the the whole that's smart recruiting issue exactly because then at the, the whole point we were talking about this having a nice little juicy conversation off mic about leveling the play field right of, of making sure that it's, there's going to be a little bit of catching up to do uh, on the female side 
And once that's the case, then it's hopefully we don't have to be talking about this anymore. It'll just happen, and it'll be a little bit more egalitarian. Um, another interesting question, and this is something that made me a little furious uh, when I read about this, but uh, obviously we're hearing a lot about this best female this, best female that, uh, best female chef, best female pastry chef. Uh, it's being thrown around uh, over the last maybe couple of years. Um, is that helping you know, carve out recognition or is that really taking a step backwards? And, and again, this was, I remember reading the Dominic Crenn best chef thing and right. it's oddly enough i just spoke to them this week the you know their team to work on some needs that they have in in san fran and i remembered that and i was like wow you know how, how does she feel about that reading that instead of just best chef it's like best female chef that just infuriates me as a, as a male i don't know how you guys feel about it um camille how do you uh how does that resonate you know i haven't really thought about it too much but i will say like we grew up in a society that it, you know, for music, for um, actors, you know, there mm-hmm. is that category, best female actor, best male actor. Mm-hmm. And so now that it's, now that we're in a position to sort of right certain wrongs within our personal industry of, of um, restaurants and um, hospitality, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I mean, I, you know, I came up in, um, in a time where, you know, I didn't really get any accolades. And so I'm not, I don't know that I'm in the position to, I I would have to think about it. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's sort of weird but then also then why are music and yeah and it's funny you mention that that, because actor and just like chef i mean there's the word actress but you still call them actors right and chef too it's not like a female you know there's no word for a female chef it's a chef um i don't know i think that was such a good point because i think it did sit wrong with me when that award came out and it's because it's not best male chef and best female chef it's best chef and then best exactly. female there's chef there's no best male chef and so uh, it yeah. felt like and you know i think the world's 50 best has gotten some criticism for being so predominantly white and so mm-hmm. predominantly male and this what it felt like this was their like oh well here's like our yeah. small effort in correcting mm-hmm. it right. and i and it i think it's a really great step like it's progress but i just don't want that to be the only thing mm-hmm. that they change and how they assess however they construe world's 50 best and yeah. i would say annie to your approach with king your goal was to be the best restaurant you could be not the best female owned restaurant you could be so i think it it supports that point that how is being female relevant to the quality of what you're producing yeah. And just even thinking about it a little bit more, I um, I guess, you know, looking, thinking about, like, actors and, and um, musicians, I mean, I guess be, you know, when you're a male actor, you can only take sort of male roles. I mean, is that the difference there? And if so, then, yeah, maybe, you know, a chef shouldn't be categorized within their gender mm-hmm. and music's music right at the end of the day i mean an artist to me it's just crazy that there's the male and female division there i mean you're creating art right i mean what about paintings right i mean you're gonna say oh picasso was the best male I mean, it's like, <laughs> right come on i mean well, we're entering an age where you know 
race and sex are becoming, we want them to become obsolete. We don't Mm -hmm. want that sort of barrier within us. And so I think that if we're in the beginning of something within our field that we don't feel is right, then I think now's the time to change it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Agree to that. Um, with that, we're going to move on to some uh, retention questions, right? The second part of uh, of the show. We talked about recruitment. We're going to talk about retention. And, uh, and then we'll keep going. Okay, perfect. So I wanted to kick it off speaking about retention with the question, what are some innovative ways you're retaining your best employees? And I'll start with you, Alita. From an HR perspective, I'm sure you can illuminate quite a bit. Um, and I would, I would add to that the question of how do you identify who your best employees are as well when we're considering who to keep and who not to keep? Yeah, so I'll answer that part first. Um, I think that we try to look at it from a holistic perspective. So we were talking uh, prior to the show about how you know somebody could be viewed as a, a great employee because they're such a hard worker, but they might not fit in culturally. They might not exude this amazing presence or be super warm and respectful to others. And so we're really trying to look at things, um, not just are they really hard workers or can they complete that task quickly, but do they fit into our culture? Do they lead with respect and warmth? Um, and so viewing it from that perspective, I think it's changing the way that our managers are um, evaluating their teams. Um, for us, we really try to look at um, providing a very clear growth path for our employees. We truly, um, when it comes to retention, we want to make sure that every employee feels seen, heard, appreciated, and are given the tools that they need to succeed. And we find that if we do those things well, we will retain uh, the best workers in our in our on our team um, because we see that everybody does want to be seen. They want to be acknowledged. They want to feel valued. Uh, they want to be heard. They want their contributions to be acknowledged, and they want to feel like they have a seat at the table, and they want to be appreciated. Um, it's definitely a new day and age in the restaurant field, and. People are not going to stick around just for their paycheck anymore. Mm-hmm. So you, the little things like thank yous, the little things like acknowledging their birthday and connecting on a human level, I think go a really, really long way. That's yeah. a good point you just mentioned. It's so nomadic nowadays. From a recruiting standpoint, we see that now where you know, it used to be two to three years longevity. It's like, wow, pretty cool resume. Forget it. Those days are over. I mean, a year and you're already like salivating. It's like people are really bouncing. And it's because of that. If you're not getting treated well, you know, people aren't sticking around. People want to feel like they have a space. Yeah, they they move on and there's other options and they're not going to take that crap from people. And they also want to know what it takes to win. I mean, what does winning look like? How how do I know that I'm doing a good job? Um, and if you very clearly lay that out, this is what winning looks like. This is how we're going to evaluate you. This is what it means to do a good job. Um, they appreciate that. How yeah. have you seen that change over time? Because I think we always bring up the M word, millennials. We should oh, be talking boy. about Generation Z now as well. But how do you see those generations that are newer to the workforce changing the way that you as a company need to act to retain them. Well, I give them all the credit because they are the reason that we 
focus on these things. Back when I was um, in operations, it was, you are lucky to have a job. Uh, mm-hmm. Do not complain or else You're we out. can get somebody else yeah. in here that would very happily take your tables and take your tips. Um, and so all of this other stuff, how you felt did not matter. They did not care. It was serve your tables. Um, and I think it's because of these new emerging leaders that are coming up that are changing the way that we view retention. They're changing the way that we view a great work environment. And the, so the tables have flipped a little bit. And we also deal with this on the recruitment side where we're coaching our candidates going into interviews and we're saying, guys, this is very much a two way street. Now it used to be, you, you know, you sit there, you answer questions, you know, you shake their hand and you walk away. Mm-hmm. You're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. Yeah. And a lot of times we'll see that people are coming in. It sounds great on paper, great opportunity. After the interview, they bounce there. It's not interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the culture that doesn't resonate. They asked the right questions, didn't get the answers that they were expecting or wanting. And, and they're not taking that position. For operators who are viewing the Gen Z millennial challenge as a negative what advice would you give them as an HR pr- practitioner, as a culture champion? What, how should their perspective change and, and how can they view some of these new, unique challenges as a positive? Well, I think it's um, going back to the drawing board and not just holding on to what was. Um, understanding that change is happening, whether you want to get on board or not. Um, So if you want to be successful, you're going to wrap your head around how these changes are going to affect you and how you're going to change your practices. Um, I was also dealing with getting on board to this whole thing a couple years ago. Simon Sinek did an amazing TED Talk um, around millennials, and it got me to change the way I viewed things um, and understand a little bit more of the whys and become a little bit more empathetic to what they're bringing to the table. And that really got me on uh, the right page, I think. Yeah. Camille, what are your thoughts in terms of retaining talent in this new workforce? Yeah, I think as a chef and as someone leading a kitchen, I think there is a difference between being the sort of like captain and more of being a teacher. I think as a chef, mm-hmm. we are we really are teachers because we're this is a craft that we're doing and we are showing these people how to do it the best that one knows how. And so I think that when chefs sort of take that mind frame on as like I'm helping you, I'm teaching you this, um it kind of softs it softs softens a lot of that sort of I know best you know do this this way um or teaching someone or telling someone to do it I think there I've always tried to sort of teach gently and always be very supportive of their end product um but also also like be a student because um I think that when young cooks and young chefs are doing things over and over again, um, they really want to participate in um, and just creating their th- their own thing as well. And I think that that's super important for retaining is mm-hmm. giving, giving young them the space cooks to, and, to make their mark. Yeah, yeah, and chefs to to come to you to feel comfortable to come to you and say, "Hey, this." is a way of doing it or do you know this ingredient or 
Um, I love this ingredient. Would Can I work on something with you to put on the menu? Like, that's so encouraging, I think, for, for young chefs. How do you feel you do that? How do you encourage people to feel that level of comfort where it might not be the norm that they're welcome to share input? Well, I don't think it's that I do anything specifically. I just don't critique. I don't criticize. I don't... Um, I, I feel like I want them to be comfortable in their craft. And really that's how I was given, or when I studied my craft and once I kind of got comfortable within my craft, that's when I was really able to be, um, expressive. And, and so I just want to, I, I'm, I'm sort of giving them a playing field to, to be, comfortable in their craft so that they can express themselves. Yeah, that's great. Annie, from your perspective, we talked a bit about career development and growth and creating this clear roadmap, welcoming people to have creativity. What other things do you feel make for strong retention in your experience? Um, I think, and this is something that we've heard from our staff, but um, I think we have a lot of compassion for the things that happen in life. And because I'm someone who, like, I think there are people who can, like, really work through a personal crisis and, like, you know, put on, like, a kind of poker face. I'm not one of those people. I've never been one of those people. The number of times I've cried at my work before King and, like, <laughs> throughout the opening of King is countless. And so whenever my staff have come to me with, personal issues or you know having a moment where they like need to step out like it's I'm just like I know what it feels like to be in that moment like of course you can leave early tonight because you're not feeling well and like I don't think anyone takes advantage of that I think they really appreciate it because it's there's a lot happening in everyone's personal life and you never Mm -hmm. really know the full extent of it and I think the only thing you can do is trust them and be compassionate and know that they you know I 100% trust their loyalty to the restaurant and that they want the restaurant to be the best it can be. And so when they need a second, whether it's a last minute, like they can't work the shift or they need to step out early or they just need someone to talk to, like in the middle of their double, um, I think we're always really open to that. And we always tell people like, feel more humanity, less policies, right? Just, yeah. just be like, which I warm. know is maybe not great. <laughs> best HR practices to an extent. Oh. I think it works for us in the small restaurant that we are. As long are. as you're consistent. Ah. Yes. <laughs> yes. You don't discriminate your humanity. Yeah. You're, you're good to everybody. Yeah. yeah. And we, um, I think that's really, it's just the way we've all like naturally managed. Well, and one of the things um, I've become very interested in is Gen Z and what are their unique uh, positive traits. And one of the things, one of the alternate names for Gen Z is true gen, the true generation, because they're, they're on this perpetual quest to be true to themselves. To what not, age group is this? What, uh, what are we talking about? So this is anyone born in the two thousands. So we're talking the generation entering the workforce now. Okay. Um, and there's a benefit to that And it really, I think, jives well with what you were saying, Annie, about welcoming people to express what they're feeling or to feel comfortable bringing forward personal challenges. This is a generation that truly 
puts a lot of value on who they are and what their challenges are. And I think if you can mirror that as a mentor and a boss, that can be a very empowering thing for them to see someone who's in a position of authority, who's actually comfortable with kind of bearing their soul, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So I, I agree. And I think from an HR perspective, you probably agree, Alina, I think being human is a best practice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. I think we all want to work for people that understand that life happens. Yeah, definitely. So one more question. What happens... If you know right away that you made a poor hire and Alita and Annie, I'd love to hear your input on that. And then I'd love to actually flip it, Camille, for you and talk a bit about from an employee perspective, finding the right company and what you should do if you feel you've picked the wrong company. So maybe Annie, we could start with you. What maybe from prior experience or not, but what, what do you do once you realize that you've hired the wrong person? Um, well, I think over time I've gotten so much better at listening to my gut and it's, it's about like for a small restaurant culture is very important because we all work in such close quarters together. Um, and so I always make sure I'm like asking for feedback from the other managers. Um, but if I've already made the hire and it's been a poor hire, um, well, first, you know, we always tell everyone the first three months is uh, a trial. Um, and you're not fully hired until we have that evaluation at the end of your three-month trial. Um, but second, I've just, I've been super honest. I've sat people down and I've been, like, truthful, like, hey, I don't think this is a good fit because of X, Y, and Z reason. And what I found more often than not, actually, it's like a weird thing at King, is that most of the time they feel the same way Mm. they feel the same way they're like yeah i don't think this is a good fit either or like yeah i'm not really happy or yeah actually there's all of this stuff that's been happening in my personal life and i've been having a really hard time and you're like when were you going to tell me that you know (laughs) (laughs) and it tends to be like if you're communicating and if you're being honest it tends to be true both ways um and so it makes the conversation a lot easier yeah Alita, how about you from an, from a larger company standpoint? What are some of the processes that you have in place to help your managers deal with a situation of hiring the wrong person? Well, I think a probationary period is is a saving grace so that you can have that time you to... You have out. Yes. Um, but same exact thing. I think that having that honest conversation, 99% of the time, the person physically, like, you can tell, relaxes because they say, yeah, I'm not feeling it either. Or, yep, I, I agree, this is not going well. Um, and to your to your question, I think they are waiting for somebody to either come along and save them and give them another job mm-hmm. or waiting for you to make that to hard call. It it, right. Not so different than uh, dating scene, I would say. It's very <laughs> similar. Very, very similar. Yeah. But when you're honest and you're authentic and you're transparent, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, and I would just reinforce that as an HR professional. Sometimes I cringe when people talk about the introductory period or the probationary mm-hmm. period because it doesn't remove the obligation to communicate. And I do think sometimes with clients we've supported and... 
mm-hmm. uh, restaurants where I've worked in the past, there's a sense that you don't have to communicate about someone's performance until they've passed that period. Oh dear. When in reality... You can know right away, and then you're sitting on it. For yeah, the, and in reality, we're saying it's a getting-to-know-you period, so it's a bit easier for us to say, thank you, it's not a fit in that time frame, but it doesn't remove the obligation to communicate about how that person's doing. Um, so, Camille, I'm curious from your perspective. You start working with a restaurant group. You realize, as I know you have, all of us have in hospitality, that it is a toxic work environment or there's something that makes it not a fit. Um, how do you know that? And what should you do as an employee if you're in that position? Yeah, so I would say for the past four restaurants that I've worked on, um, it's been an interesting situation in that I would meet someone who wanted to open a restaurant. So it wasn't already a, a running restaurant. And they would come to me and ask me um, to work on it and to develop um to develop a concept for a restaurant. And it's usually downtown where I've lived in for a very long time. Uh, It's usually people with some money who want this title of being a restaurateur. It's really hard. It's very hard. For me, it's been very hard to understand if it's the right fit because there's nothing to go by. We haven't done any real work. Uh, the restaurant hasn't opened. Um, I think in the beginning, everyone's has come to me and has been very excited and um, has promised me a lot and has, you know, given me such freedom to do everything that I want to do. And so it's been very hard for me to understand, you know, if it's a right fit or not, because they're just yesing me. Um, but once the restaurant opens, it it becomes it starts becoming evident um, in so many different ways. And I think, first of all, um, the way they manage money is all is always like a, a is something to look at um, how they do it, um, if they have enough funding, if they're comfortable with their funding, then um, how much how much are they trying? I also always look at how much they're trying to be um, a part of it. You know, some don't want anything to do with it and they stay out of it and they hire other people. Um, And some are in it, but without any experience. And I think that that's really kind of so tough to to work with a restaurateur that hasn't had any experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like those are really the two big points. And to be honest with you, the third one is, you know, people who want to have a restaurant so that they can have some type of publicity shown on them. And that I've had to encounter once. And that's so tough because they become jealous Mm -hmm. of your work that you've actually done for many, many years and don't understand. Spotlight. Yeah. So, um, I think the big things to look out for um, is to understand where funding is coming from and also understand their how they see themselves within the daily workings of a restaurant. Yeah, and I would second that as well. I think um, 
I think with Empowered Hospitality, it's been a bit of an exercise in learning how to find good clients and how to assess clients before we get started. I know, Mike, with One House, you've had that experience as well. And it goes the same for anyone who's interviewing for any job. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's boiled down to peeling back the layers. The first person you meet is probably not the person who ultimately is going to make the decisions that affect the job you do. And so the person that you meet is positive and enthusiastic and seems like a culture fit. And then you discover there's this owner who maybe doesn't even live in the United States who's making all of these decisions that affect your job. Um, And I found that really trying to understand what that leadership structure looks like and who is the ultimate decision maker has helped in some cases avoid some pain. But I do think it's a process. And I would say as soon as you know, it's not a fit exit as soon as you can. To to add, to add on to that, I will say for anyone that's listening out there that is already post hire, right. That has a job, just took a job. Maybe I don't care if it's one month ago, six months ago, don't stay there for the fear of what it's going to look like on your resume. Right. And I just met with someone last night, a great sommelier has worked at two of Manhattan's great fine dining restaurants as a Somme five month stint, four month stint. And she was very stressed out about it and what that looks like on her resume. And can she find another job in New York? And I say, you know what? And I talked about this, you know, with the team a lot. It's like, don't discriminate on those. Hear the story. Find out what happened there. Right? Clearly, if you have 17 three-month stints, guess what? Then it's you. Right? But a couple of them, hear, hear them out. Hear their story out. And I say, don't stay in that position. Look for another job. Don't be treated like crap. Whether it's the first day or the second month. Look for an out. You don't deserve to stay in a place like that that's toxic. And together, I think all of us can start eradicating some of those bad apples. And even just, Sarah, you and I dumping, quote unquote, dumping clients that aren't doing the right thing. You know, let two or three other recruiters like us do the same thing to them. Eventually, their well's going to dry out and maybe the restaurant will close and they'll learn the hard way. But it shouldn't have to be a candidate that feels like he or she's stuck at a job and, and being treated like crap. I actually look at it as a positive. When somebody comes to me and they say, I was at this place for two, three, four months, and I ask, why did you leave? And they tell me it was not a cultural fit, and I could not um, bear working there anymore. It tells me that they have integrity and that um, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper to see what I can do with that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was very much like, oh my gosh, how are, how's the public going to look at me if I've just opened this restaurant and now I'm leaving it? I mean, it's, and no, actually... You shouldn't have shame about that. No, you're act, principled. No, I mean, I, I do it and I don't care, but there has been, I remember someone coming up to me and saying, yeah, this person doesn't, was going to feature you in this magazine and now won't because they think that you can't, be in a restaurant for more than a year or two Mm -hmm. and that was so painful at first because that's what people kind of especially in this industry think and but I think the most important thing is like to really not care and to always know your worth Mm -hmm. and understand that if something is not happening for you and or you're not being I mean, in many cases, I would I just wouldn't be paid for months for and and I think at 
at some point, you know, you just realize, oh, I have to cut my losses. At this point, from the four four restaurants that I've worked on mm. the past four, I'm owed one hundred and sixty thousand dollars from wow. them. Wow. And so, um, yeah. So, I mean, this is sort of like the work that you know. This is what was happening prior to things kind of opening up. And that note that I said, like when I was it confronted with this horrible GM, and I kind of, sh- you know, wanted to. Um, to do right and 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 the only way I can think of was to do that it was because I had just seen something on cherry bomb that was talking about that and it really gave me the courage and so all these facets while we don't love these like all women situations they have been proving to give women the support that is needed to to for us to be to come to a certain equal standpoint Absolutely. That's, that's well, a good that's a good segue to a little break. We're going to take a little absolutely. break and we're going to be back in 1 minute. table begins long before the glassware is polished, before the china is set, spotless on the table. Setting the table begins with selecting the right people for your team. Everything flows from the expertise, innate hospitality, and critical thinking of the people who act as ambassadors to your guests every day. With One House, a recruitment firm providing a tailored talent search to hospitality operators, finding the right people is a simple recipe. One House identifies, contacts, and interviews prospective talent and conducts pre-hire reference checks. One House also assists in curating chef-tasting menus and liaises between candidate and operator throughout the interview process. Empowered Hospitality delivers human resources solutions to growing hospitality companies, presenting solutions that empower owners and operators with the knowledge, guidance, and time to better grow their businesses. Empowered Hospitality Solutions include a fully outsourced HR department, a la carte recruitment, compliance, and HR hotline services, training and education, and strategic advisement. All right, all right. Here we are. We're back, and here we so we talked about a little bit of recruitment, a little retention, and then the final R, relaxation, relaxation which we all need so we don't go batshit crazy in this industry. Uh, it's kind of a quick fire for everybody. We're going to start with Alita right next to me here. Uh, day off treat, spa or outdoor activity? Oh, spa. Spa I'm all the way? I'm a huge spa junkie. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Spa. Love spas. Camille? I would say spa. I want to just kind of conserve my energy. Yeah, no one likes the mountains, the trails, no. Maybe on the second day off. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to have to say a spa as well. Oh, wow. Sorry, New York City kid. (laughs) Spa day it is. Wow. All right. What about you, Sarah? Oh, I am, uh, I'm an outdoorsy kind of girl. All right. Actually. Spas make me nervous. Got it. it. Um, Midnight guilty pleasure. When are you breaking out 
when you get home at midnight. And this you is for just, eating. You by just the way. need a snack. <laughs> so you got to mention. Please keep it PG. Yeah. Uh, wine and brownies. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. That's a good combo for me. Mine is boring. I'm like obsessed with lime ice pops. Ooh, like paletas, like the Mexican paletas. Ooh. Unique and delicious. Um, my late night guilty pleasure is definitely blue ribbon brasserie. It's oh, really classic. I lived across yes. it from a year. I had to place oh my God. a moratorium. The seafood, the seafood tower, like the whole yeah, the poo poo platter, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> oh man, Mike, what about you? Uh, guilty pleasure. Um, I'm a hog and dust guy. Sorry, and it's yeah. I got to find it sometimes in uh, back in Spain, back home. I got to search for my hog and dust, but that's it. Yeah. That's what's in the freezer. <laughs> what? Um, here's another one: Coachella or Burning Man? Burning Man. Burning Man? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Definitely. Experiential. Yeah, I have a lot of friends that go yeah? religiously. Nice. Camille? Coachella. Coachella. Okay. Music? Um, neither. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't like You're, like, you're like spa. <laughs> I'm going to spa. I'll be at the spa. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree with you, Annie. <laughs> yeah, I'm Coachella all the way. I'm, I'm like, sorry. I, I'm too old to do this whole Burning Man thing with dust in my face. I, I want good food trucks. I want to hear some good music. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last one, uh, bucket list travel destinations. Again, money's not an object. You got a gazillion dollars. You need to go somewhere for a week. Where do you go? Uh, Maldives. Is that am I saying it correctly? Maldives. No. Maldives. 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 Yeah. yeah, it's the destination for not, sure. Not the hut over the the water. That's my yeah. Big. Yeah. Right. Japan. Oh, I love Japan. Mm, that's especially one. with no money. Like um, being like, an object. Yeah. 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 Like, definitely Japan. <laughs> right? Yeah, because if you go with no money, yeah. You yeah. got lots of rice. And he's like... back from Japan. Yeah. Um, Vietnam. I thought you were going to say spa. Uh, yeah, spa. Yeah, Vietnam. Spa. Vietnam's spa. another good one. Yeah. Nice. Uh, me. I've always wanted to go to New Zealand, but haven't been able to go yet. Nice. Nice. That yeah. is far. I'm with Camille. It's Japan all the way for me. I'm trying to plan my uh, snowboarding trip in my nice. next uh, winter. Amazing. So, very cool. Yeah. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank this you. has been really illuminating. I think we could probably talk for another hour, um, and hopefully we'll continue the conversation off mic. But uh, I just want to take a moment to thank. What? What, what did I say? What do you mean off mic? <laughs> <laughs> Again, see, it's females that was only. That's a good pun. See, here that we was go. a good pun. Uh, but yeah, you can catch this interview, past and future ones, at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Spotify. Until next time, remember: love your staff, and they will love you back. Thanks. I'd rather stay inside while the sun goes by. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.